0: to get to, uh, to bring uh, God's word to you, specifically in Philippians. Um, I've got a lot to go through, and so I'm going to get started right away. Um, first, um, let me pray. Our God and our Father, we just thank you that you and you alone are God. We thank you that in your providence you've established today to bring your word in Philippians this morning, Lord, that your spirit moves, it does as it wills, it accomplishes that for which you intend, Lord, we ask your blessing on this time, let the hearers hear, let us see Jesus as he is, and not some imagination of our heart. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I'm going to hang some ideas in the air to ensure that we're getting context. Uh, As we progress through those ideas, we'll define some terms that are used in Philippians that you would otherwise miss uh, if we didn't define them. Terms like unity and joy. Uh, Next, we're going to come back and take a 30,000-foot overview of the text We'll then circle back again and dig a little deeper, and some of this may seem redundant, but trust me, it'll help us really latch on to what Paul's trying to communicate to the Philippians and how that communication is fitting for them at the time and for us today. We're going to take a look at Paul and the Philippians, and we're going to take a look at their relationship, or Philippi, the culture, their time and history, Um, and as details unfold, we'll provide some context and anchor these ideas in the gospel. Ideally, I want to take the joy and the blessing that God has shared with me in my time in Philippians and in some way impart that to you. Um, My hope is that the Holy Spirit does exactly as he will and ensure that his word will not return void, but accomplish that for which he sent it. In Philippians, um, using Michael's analogy last week about the mountain ranges, um, where he said, I think Romans was the highest peak and the best views are from Ephesians. On the way in this morning, I couldn't help but think that Philippians is the reason why the mountain range exists. It's why you climb the mountain in the first place. Hopefully, we'll get to see that. So you'll get it, hopefully, you'll get a sense of the work, uh, or as I work through this text, providing just a cursory overview, kind of a thumbnail sketch. Um, I want to be faithful to the purpose for the series Um, as we work through the entire Bible to provide some context and outline each of the books so that at last you'd be encouraged and inspired and curious to enjoy them. So let's get started trusting God for the results. So the letter to Philippians is divided into four chapters, and despite its modest length, it boasts being rooted in the most profound truth of all of Scripture. And that truth is the grace found in the person And the work of Jesus Christ, planned from the beginning, prefigured throughout history, found in the scriptural narratives, and manifest in the uh, life of the man Christ Jesus, lavishly and graciously extended to sinners like you and I. This truth isn't spelled out like some elongated treatise found in Romans, or carefully explained like the various topics found in other uh, epistles. Instead, With a description as plain as it is powerful, it is demonstrated by practical example in the lives of the author, Paul, his companion, Timothy, and the occasion for the letter, the service of one Epaphroditus. It's pictured in overlapping and radiating examples in a way that Christ lived it, Paul lived it, Timothy lived it, Epaphroditus lived it, and you and I, brothers and sisters, are called to live it. So before I get into Philippians, it's critical that I provide some context and bring to mind these ideas that we in our daily lives often find foreign or just plain ignore, and that firstly, Philippians speaks of a joy that we as believers uh, we don't typically experience, and perhaps that's because in the West we're not overtly uh, persecuted for what we believe. Uh, Nevertheless, it is ours in Christ. I'm going to describe what that joy looks like, uh, where that joy is rooted, but necessarily, and over and against the backdrop of the holiness of God, the demand for righteousness that holiness requires. And several thoughts will emerge, and I want you to keep those thoughts suspended in your thinking, and we'll apply those directly to the text of Philippians. In other words, I'd like you, uh, to take you there and have you experience most powerfully the richness of the truths extolled by Paul to his beloved Philippian co laborers. So, this last week, um, I was in New York City and God graciously brought a man into my path. Um, he was originally from Singapore, he was, uh, came to this country as a student. And to get a degree in business that his father had sent him to do, he would much rather have done something different. Um, He said to his father, come on, man, which was one of his favorite refrains, and and I'll get to that. Uh, He wanted to do something different, but he obeyed his father. Um, He met his wife at college. Uh, He got his education, and he started a business. He raised a family, enjoyed a share of difficulty. And despite the backdrop of a crowded and problem-riddled city like New York... Um, he, was this, he was slathered in joy. Everything that he spoke of, he said with joy. Um, he had a thick Asian accent. He had a simple manner of explaining things. And his economy of words interspersed with the occasional, like I said, come on, man, what you mean? That was, what, that was, his, uh, that was his deal. Now, the, come on, man, what you mean? What that meant was, uh, this is what you would expect. Like, why would you be expecting something different? So he spoke of this difficulty that he had in school, uh, working and the problems that it brings and the constant refrain of, he also had this other phrase that he used, that's life. That's life. Now, we've probably used that uh, multiple times. And usually when we use the idea of that's life, what we're saying is that we are resigned stoically to endure the difficulty that life presents to us. But that was not the way in which he used that's life. Instead, that's life to him was that the difficulties themselves were to be embraced and cherished for all that they provide. And that life would be more fully experienced if you embraced the difficulties and hardships and you would be more adequately matured. So did you catch that? He spoke of the relationships where in the conflict, you know, he had a conflict, and he, with a simple, come on, man, spoke of taking the burden. Again, the idea of, hey, this is what you would expect. Uh, He took that and decided to discharge that burden and enjoy it, not because of some distant reward, but because to do otherwise is to do it under the chains of constricting pride. He spoke of finances and raising a family, growing a business, and all the the while that joy was laced through his words. He didn't labor under the notion that he couldn't enjoy what was right in front of him, not hedonistically, but not denying himself the good that his heart saw to experience. So I don't know if I can recreate for you the picture, the obvious picture of a joyful man, no matter what he spoke of, 9-11, taking his child to work in a delivery vehicle, being young, and the delivery vehicle is the laundromat that he started, so working long hours, and infant child as he's just going back and forth the compromise that he made uh in his marital life where he worked all day at this business and then came home and because his wife didn't really like to cook he cooked and then he cleaned up after it and then he went and uh you know watched a little tv and then rinse repeat came back and did it again um but he spoke of it he spoke of all of that uh like it was his favorite experience and full of inexpressible joy and I know I'm taking a while, but I want to labor on this point because this joy is one of the clearest pictures that you'll, you're sure to find if you spend any real time in Philippians. Now, I, <clears throat> I know that the source of joy for the believer, which I'm going to describe to you. Now, the joy that I described, I don't know if that man was a believer. Uh, he was my Uber driver. We were headed to the airport, and I, pr- I told him at the end, it was like, I'm going to pray for you. And I said, by the way, I pray to Jesus Christ, just so you know. And uh, he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't rebuff me at all. And during the prayer, I heard him saying "thank you" and "amen" and "yes" throughout the prayer. So maybe he's a Baptist. <laughs> but, but whatever the case, to understand the source of joy in Philippians, it must be seen through the glory of the humiliation of Christ against the wrath of Almighty God. So you have to see clearly the stark contrast between the passion of our Lord and the wrath. God's justice demands. The God we refer to is thrice holy. This is a God who in his holiness struck Uzzah for touching the ark while it jostled on a cart. Call to your attention the God who in a moment killed Hophni and Phinehas because they meddled with the formula for worship as God had instructed. Killed for experimenting with God's order. Focus again on the God who, when the sons of Korah spoke against Moses, the earth opened up its mouth wide and they were swallowed up in an instant. More than that, fire came out from the ark and 250 men were consumed by it. Who, this God, for the sake of a craving for meat, the people of Israel, instead of the manna which God provided, these people grumbled and lusted after meat and a plague broke out and killed thousands. For the sake of 10 spies, the entire generation of Israelites were left to drop dead in the wilderness. Because of their constant grumbling and complaining. Do you ever complain? Do you grumble? Are you not satisfied with what God has provided? What about the service of church? Is that not to your liking? This is the Lord who says, I will be sanctified by those who draw near to me. This God, this God whose law is perfect and binding on every man, woman, and child throughout all of history, has every right And his righteousness and justice demands that he condemn every last one of us to an eternal punishment. And the worst of all hells in torment and hopelessness as a practical demonstration of his divine and holy character. Now, we don't have anything to say about it except, yes, Lord, you are righteous and just. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember, this is the God who by no means will clear the guilty. This is the God who says in Proverbs 17, Acquitting the guilty, the Lord detests. And in Proverbs 24, whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed. So, how can this be? How can God demand justice in such a complete and binding terms and then pardon anyone? God's righteousness demands blood for sin, yours and mine. We're under a curse. We are destined for death and eternal torment. And in God's holy wrath, he has both the right and the obligation to destroy us. But here we are, breathing, living, day after day. How can that be? And don't dare say it's because of his mercy. He doesn't owe mercy to you. He doesn't owe mercy to me. He doesn't owe mercy to anyone. Instead, spend a few moments and meditate on it. This is not a God who can be manipulated or fooled. He's not easily appeased. More, there's a cloud of witnesses that know perfectly well God's holiness. His radiant glory, his sovereign authority, and they're watching. What will God do? His creation has rebelled and spitefully thumbed their noses at God. They have doubted the most high. His justice and righteousness demand action to swallow us all up and be consumed as in a moment. How can God justify you or anyone? How can God escape the demands of his holy righteousness? Well, I hope you see the beauty here. Because this God is both just and the justifier. Because the incredible, unfathomable, incomprehensible, beautiful, gracious demonstration of humility and submission of Christ, who did so in a way that none on earth throughout all of history and the remainder thereof has even the slightest chance to successfully execute. And as an acceptable propitiational substitute, Christ willingly discharges our burden. And more than that, he elevates us to adoption as sons and daughters of the living God, this, brothers and sisters, is the source of Christian joy. The fact that Christ took that penalty that was as certain for you and I as in the day we were conceived, we were condemned. And to the glory of God in his masterful plan, he retains both His holiness and righteousness and His mercy and compassion. And the crowd of witnesses applaud in the never-ending song of praise to the glory of almighty god this dear friends is the tone under which paul writes his letter to the philippians the glory of god demonstrating that he can be both just condemning the wicked and justifier pardoning the elect who are only so because of his beautiful grace and love so can you see can you see his glory can you see how gracious that grace is Can you see the marvelous love of Christ? Can you now see the source of that joy inexpressible? We have peace with God. We are united in Christ. This is just a foretaste of the enriching nourishment that awaits you if you take up Philippians and meditate on it. So now, quick 30,000-foot overview of the text. The letter of the Philippians consists of four chapters. It's 104 verses. Each of the first two chapters have 30 verses, while the third contains 21, and chapter 4, the remaining 23. Now, while all the contents have deep meaning and insight into Paul's life and his relationships, his yearnings, the stewardship of the gospel, his unwavering and unyielding devotion to Christ, it's the middle two chapters which point to that reality and provide the most insight into the why of that reality. The outside chapters tell how-to information by exhortation and example, while the inner two share a deep anchor and necessary reason. So Paul is clearly intending, as he thanks the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel and the gift that they sent through Epaphroditus, uh, to share encouragement, personal details, expressing his great affection for them and his desire to protect them from not only false teachers, but also the weakness of a lack of relational context. Upon which the Christian experience rests. We're introduced in this letter into two groups the enemies of Christ, who unwittingly do his will, and the servants of Christ, who willingly do so. By name, Paul and Timothy, Epaphroditus, each of which we'll see example, are examples of Christ, and Eudeus and Syntyche as persons who uh, really needed to hear this message. Uh, kidding, of course, you know how that goes. Uh, you really should have heard the message today. It was, like, right for you. Uh, these two beloved sisters in the faith uh, that Paul exhorts to reconcile. We're also introduced to some unnamed folk who are co-laborers with Christ in the gospel, with Clement, who studied under Paul. Here we can see accountability and relationship and the bonds of affection and unity in Christ, which represent a few of the repeated themes in Philippians. We learned some important truths in Philippians. These are articulated in the text in a way that brings to mind a wise and gentle man, aging wisdom, aging in wisdom and strength in deciding to gift you with the insight he might have come by the hard way. Profound and true in the deepest sense that it should guide you in, the, in your thinking in life and that the key to unlocking the exact orientation of the Christian experience is being carefully dispensed in a way that Philippians are... Philippians, The letter of Philippians is given to only a select few people to enjoy. And that's actually true. Because it's for the elect. By God's grace and sovereign power. Chapter 1 begins with a customary introduction and a deep expression of love. It seeks to share the lived experience of Paul and his mission as set apart for God for preaching the gospel. It tells of what has befallen Paul having been placed into prison and God's superintending power and grace in every circumstance. This is the occasion for the letter. Epaphroditus had brought Paul a gift from the Philippians, and it caused Paul great joy for their labor in the gospel. There he moves from his greeting, his expression of love to them, that pours into joyous thanksgiving and prayer, grounded into the same idea of God's sovereign superintending power, that God is faithful, and he will bring his work to a beautiful conclusion in the Philippian believers, in fact, all believers. He feels confident of this because of the fruit of their actions. They send him a gift. They co-labor in the gospel. They participate with him. Uh, there is a statute that David put forward when they went to war and some had to stay back that they, the two would share in the same bounty of the victory because... The ones that were home doing the, the things that they needed to do at home were every bit as valuable and important as the ones who went out. And so these Philippians, even though it was Paul on the front lines, these Philippians, by their sacrifice, were sharing in that, partaking in that. And that caused Paul great joy. Paul then moves to describe such a deep commitment to Christ that he almost wonders aloud to the Philippians, what, what is the end of his course and what should it look like? He's certainly ready to be with the Lord. Is his labor yet complete? He closes that with the notion that it would be better for him to continue to serve Christ for the sake of the Philippians that he would stay for the sake of the Philippians. Paul choosing to suffer in life for the sake of his beloved friends at Philippi. Chapter one closes with the reaffirmation of Paul's commitment to the Philippian believers. His great love for them, and the joy that they bring to him as, they see, as he sees them obeying Christ. Chapter 2 would be the pearl in the oyster. Chapter 2 plums deeply into the simplicity and profundity of the gospel. It's both in an exhortation and revelata- revelation. It's an example. Its strength is in its simplicity. It is a call to embrace the reality of the ark of the divine and its redeeming power, not just the redemption of men, but indeed all things in the created order. Soon everything in heaven and on earth will vibrate or dance or sing to the tune that resonates at the frequency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 encapsulates perfectly with simplicity the straightforwardness of the gospel, the holiness of God, the beauty of his perfection, the supremacy of his lordship, and the inevitability of his everlasting dominion. Paul offers intentionally or not, because God certainly intended it, a couple of examples of the tuning fork of the gospel, the animating testimony of what it looks like to be like Christ, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy in his unwavering commitment to the gospel, doing the will of his spiritual father, Paul, and Epaphroditus, who did not count his life as precious, but ministering to Paul in his need and nearly dying doing so, being resurrected, as it were, by God as he was spared and restored to Paul and the Philippians, who they both held so dearly. you get goosebumps over that? The way that people's lives, the way they live them out, that God demonstrates a picture of what's going on and what it is is planned through their very lives and the decisions that they make, apparently uh, with free will. How God superintends that the beauty of his holiness will be shown no matter what. I get charged when I hear that stuff. So they're simply living their lives doing what makes sense, and God's superintending power is at work. Now, if chapter 2 is the pearl, chapter 3 is a backyard neighborhood treatise on how to recognize it and what to do with it. Now, backyard neighborhood treatise, to me, means simply that when things go sideways, the raw side of punching the bully in the mouth without a huge dissertation or an argument wins the day. Proverbs says answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes and that the rod is for the backs of fools. See if you can spot what I mean when I say or when excuse me when Paul says beware of the dogs. So much for the 11th commandment thou shalt be nice. Paul continues you want to talk street cred? These guys who think works are all the rage. You want to talk street cred? I got street cred. And he lists it out. A Jew, a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day, blameless, the highest order in his system of thought. By birth and by training, Paul was a man's man. And he says pointedly, all that ain't worth excrement. See what I mean? Paul's scrappy. He then holds up what is of surpassing worth, the excellency, listen to this, the excellency of knowing Christ being found in him, and the power of his resurrection, being counted worthy of his sufferings, and being conformable to his death. To achieve the prize, if by any means he might attain the resurrection. Do you know what that means, being conformable to his death? So we all die. That ain't hard. Doesn't take much effort to do that. Paul's pointing out that in his sanctification, to be innocent and blameless as a worthy servant of Christ having poured all of himself into Christ and his service, independently of the difficulty, the circumstance, the hardship, the effort, the humiliation, the ongoing suffering. It's a death that he dares to, be, uh, to, to desire to be conformed to. That is a worthy death. That's what Paul is saying. He Paul is both scrappy and single-minded. And he concludes chapter 3 by indicating that the Philippians should mark those that walk as Paul walks. In other words, we all need that example. So Paul concludes Philippians in chapter 4 much like he started in chapter 1. You'll be amazed, I hope, when you take the opportunity to meditate deeply on Philippians to see the number of repeated call back expansive themes that are contained in so little text. Like a tuning fork that resonates and affects all that has the same makeup. It starts in one place, but then enlists all that's around it, calling back and forth, vibrating with the same frequency, a beautiful tone, a sound calling and inviting. So here we learn also of a rift between Yodius and Syntyche and the need to be of the same mind in the Lord, a rift such that Paul enlists the help of others to aid in the delivery from the differences, as he invokes their participation in the labor of the gospel with Clement and others whose names are written in the book of life. He encourages them to meditate on the good, something in the age of social media and 24-hour news cycles we could all stand to heed. He calls them to rest in God through prayer and supplication. Rest. Rest. Deep faith in God. Rest. By prayer and supplication, God is good. You are right where he wants you. Rest. Rest by prayer and supplication. The Lord is at hand. Finally, he expresses his deep gratitude for seeing the fruits of their labor and the consistency and sincerity of their fellowship. He concludes with a callback, indicating that among those that salute the Philippians, this is really cool. So among those that salute the Philippians, chiefly are the household of Caesar. So think about that. The citizens, the ones with the privilege... Of Caesar's own household are chiefly saluting the poor but faithful Philippians, the believers. Is God not great? So, Philippians was written by Paul, as noted in the opening lines. It's not a dispute. Paul and Timothy. Paul identifies himself and Timothy with him. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle. He doesn't need to defend his authority with the Philippians. Instead, he identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ, a willing slave, and for the glory of Christ. There's no specific behavioral errors that Paul is attempting to correct and no expository theological arguments. Paul reads, or excuse me, Philippians reads both like communication from Paul to the Philippians as an expression of love and affection and an update on the conditions in which Paul finds himself and an ex- exhortation to remain steadfast in Christ. Nestled inside that communication is the source of Paul's strength, which is e- he's eager to share with the Philippian believers. Written in roughly A.D. 61, this letter was penned certainly from prison, and most likely from prison in Rome. It seems to be the case because the text indicates that Paul awaited some final decision in his case, in chapter 2, verse 23. This expectation, because remember Paul was a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal directly to Caesar. So along with the mention of the imperial guard and those that are among Caesar's household, sending salutations represents the evidence that points to Paul being in Rome and a time frame that we just alluded to, AD 61, 62-ish. So Paul planted the church at Philippi with Silas on his second missionary journey after the fallout with Barnabas, Barnabas over John Mark. You may remember that on his first missionary journey, Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And in Paul's zeal, you get a sense of Paul here. He was not quick to oblige a second opportunity for Mark. Paul is eager to communicate with his friends at Philippi in response to the gift that Philippians sent through Epaphroditus Epaphroditus to supply Paul while in prison. In those days, prison didn't come with cable TV and three meals a day. The prisoner was dependent on the external resources for sustenance, and it appears that after some years had passed, since they had last seen Paul in Philippi, they'd found out that Paul was in prison, and the Philippians, despite their relatively meager means, provided Paul a generous gift, and in so doing refreshed the enduring relationship between the two now, they had, they had sent him many gifts. Um, in fact, when he was at another church doing ministry at another church, which very well should have been supplying for Paul's need, the Philippians sent a gift. So it goes back to what I said before about their participation in the gospel with Paul. Paul certainly had, and I've said it many times in this already, deep, deep affection for the Philippian believers. In fact, he says, uh, I yearn for you with the bowels of Christ. And we're going to get more into that as well. So, Paul, the father, as it were, and the Philippian believers as children, spiritually speaking. So, we get the sense that Paul expressed his longing and compassion for them, as he does in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, which I just described for you. Paul was eager to share back as they shared with him. So, you're going to start to get the picture of this idea of things calling back. Philippians does a great job of just kind of weaving and folding in these ideas that are repeated. Um, And I'll get to some of them pretty obviously, but the most obvious is rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He doubles down on things that he says, but we'll see more of that. So they sent a gift of sustenance in the form of supplies, and Paul returned the gift of spiritual sustenance in the form of encouragement through the truth of God and Epaphroditus, their messenger, who had taken ill when he delivered the gift to Paul. So this shows an echo in the narrative. in the text, where the Philippians share and Paul shares. Epaphroditus brings Paul news and encouragement from the Philippians, and Epaphroditus goes back to the Philippians to provide news and encouragement. Their gift to Paul was an acceptable gift before God. Epaphroditus is an example of Christ and a gift back to the Philippians, back from the dead, as it were, as we read in chapter 2, verse 27. For indeed, he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, But on me also, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow, Paul says back to the Philippians. This sort of echo and ripple happens repeatedly. Notice the intertwined relationship of the expression, gifts and updates exchanged. Paul sacrificed for the Philippians, the Philippians sacrifice for Paul. The mercy on Paul and the mercy on Epaphroditus and the Philippians. Paul may be dying. He expressed, hey, I don't know how it's going to go for me. Am I going to live or am I going to die? I don't know. Uh, Epaphroditus nearly dying. Paul being faithful and longing for the Philippians. Um, and he says that in the very beginning, and he also says that at the end. Epaphroditus, upon hearing that the Philippians were worried about him, he longed for the Philippians and worried about them. So you see this constant back and forth, this hovering over what it means to live in the Christian experience. So they both sent Epaphroditus. So al- although Philippians can be divided in many ways, the major themes of the book can fall into three categories. The first and central most prominent theme is a concise description of the example of Christ, beginning in chapter 2, verse 5. The example of Christ is echoed in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, while most applicable to the Lord. I'll get more detail on that later, but it's expected that those who read the letter also follow that example, live out the example, and meditate on it, and so are we to do so. The second category is the effects that surround living this example out namely the unity, which is found in Christ, the joy, which we talked about already, which is found in Christ, the suffering, perseverance, assurance, which are found in Christ, and the strength and glory, which are also found in Christ. Thirdly, Paul lays out exactly the mechanics of this example, so the third category would be the mechanics of the example. He doesn't leave us wondering. He digs into his own experience and shares in intimate detail what his thinking is and where his affections lie and why they are that way, giving us kind of a nested example in his very testimony of that condition. So, about, about Paul, I know we've covered some of this, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But, uh, so, we're introduced to Paul, um, who is Saul of Tarsus, and uh, he was the one who held on to the garments while Stephen was being martyred. And most uh, pointedly, we read um, that, Paul, that Saul approved of his execution. He studied under Gamaliel, probably the most prominent mind at the time. Paul was elevated to the status of Pharisee. He was set to be in the Council of the Sanhedrin. He was kind of an up-and-comer on the fast track of Jewish success. And while Christ was growing and preparing for his ministry, being obedient, so too Paul was uh, learning learning the law under Gamaliel. And just as Christ's earthly ministry was to come to a climactic finish, with our Savior sitting down at the Majesty on High, His Passion Week and Resurrection, Saul, a zealous, passionate man himself, angry over the sect belonging to the way, used his standing and industriousness to stamp out the growing church. He was met by Christ when he was delivering some letters, and there's something interesting I want to point out there. He was riding a horse. He fell off his horse. We've used that expression before. Get off your horse. This idea of pride. He was knocked off his horse. That's humility, right? We're talking about Christ's humility, right, as we think of this passage. It's dramatic, and in its effect, I want to point out one quick thing. Um, Paul saw Christ. Paul heard Christ. There were were at least three people there. There There's two other companions. Those companions did see light, but they couldn't make out Christ. They heard noise. But they didn't understand the words. This is a clear indication of God's sovereign choice and power and his marvelous grace. Saul sees Jesus, hears Jesus, and is converted. But his companions, companions who are with him can't make out the figure, can't make intelligence of the sounds, and they are left in their sins. A little later, Ananias is told by God to go seek out Paul because Paul's looking for him. And, and something fo- that I want you to focus on here. Um, Ananias kind of complains hey wait a minute don't you know who this is and God says back to him no no don't you know who this is he's a chosen vessel of mine and he's going to be shown exactly what he needs to do he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the children of Israel he's going to stand before kings and he will be shown how much he'll have to suffer for my name's sake On Paul's second missionary journey, he planted the church at Philippi. He wanted to go to Asia, but he was prevented by the Holy Spirit. So he went the only way he wasn't prevented. Couldn't go north, couldn't go south. The Spirit said no. He came from the east. Only leaves one direction. So he went west. Zealous man, Paul. So he goes 700 miles. So Scripture says he went to Troas 700 miles. So in in Troas, he had a, a vision of a man in Macedonia... Came to asking him to help there, so Paul left Macedonia and coming to Philippi, he found Lydia. So the man that he saw apparently was Lydia. Just teasing there. She was a seller of purple, so she was well to do, and she surely held a prominent role financing the uh, the early church there in Philippi. It's meant that the Jewish contingent was kind of small because he went to find a synagogue, but you need ten men to form a synagogue, and uh, there weren't ten. Philippi received its name from Philip II of Macedon after the father of Alexander the Great. He was attracted to Philippi because of the gold mines. It wasn't named Philippi at the time. He named it Philippi after himself. Um, It had a gold mine in the mountains, which were nearly exhausted, but um, it still got him about 1,000 talents a day. It was fertile. It was agrarian. Um, Basically, Philippi, after that, remained in relative obscurity. Um, But then it was conquered by Rome. 42 BC, the forces of Antidee and Caesar Augustus defeated those of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi, ending the Roman Republic and issuing in the uh, Roman Empire. Veterans from Rome kind of settled there, which meant that it became a Roman province, and as a Roman province, it was given a lot of the different status and capabilities that you would expect of any city in Italy. Didn't have to pay the same taxes, etc., so there was this huge divide between the Philippian people that were there and the Roman uh, citizens. So there were non-citizens and citizens. And if you want to get some sense of this, think about World War II in the United States, um, Americans traveling after World War II. Wherever an American went at that time, there was a certain status and privilege afforded to an American. right? And so then the idea there is that it creates a hierarchy in Philippi. Because, again, the citizens, non-citizens... Those who were very, very well-to-do, thought of well, and those who were not. So that might be why um, in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, because boasting in the idea that you're a Roman citizen, right, and you've got all these advantages or privilege, um, is not what Paul intended, not what God intended. In fact, um, our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul's saying, scrap that. That stuff on earth doesn't matter. Joy is mentioned over 17 times in the text. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice in every prayer of mine for you, making all requests with joy in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ has preached, and therein I do rejoice and I will rejoice. That your rejoicing may be more abundant, fulfill my joy. And so it goes. Where do we see this idea of unity and joy? Well, I can't help but I want to share with you where we see it. Where we see it, we go to John chapter 17. Now think of this. Um, Paul is expressing, you know, he's looking for a final decision. He doesn't know where he's going to be. Um, and he, but he leans in to the suffering. And remember, Christ set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem in order to go through the Last Supper and the Passion, he leaned in to the suffering, and like Paul sending message and encouragement back to the Philippians, Christ is praying to God and pouring out his heart to God. And what we read there, um, <clears throat> what we read there is, let uh, me want to skip ahead to my notes here. What we read there is a number of callbacks, just like in Philippians. I and you, and you and me. These believers were yours. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I'm giving them back to you. My glory I'm giving to them. The glory you gave to me, I'm giving to them. Right? That they're gonna that you're gonna be glorified. Father, glorify me like, like the glory I had before. And he Christ repeats this idea of unity again and again. And he says, uh, but now I'm coming to you and these things that I speak in the world, they may have, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is this joy? It goes back to what we just described. The glory, the purpose for which Christ actually came. And so what suffering and what difficulty could possibly come against that joy that Christ speaks of? And Paul, as the spiritual father of the believers at Philippi, is merely demonstrating As we're a gift from Christ to God, the Philippians are a gift from Paul to God. This is why Paul can say boldly, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why Paul so confidently exclaims in chapter 1, verse 2, that in nothing I will be ashamed. How can you be ashamed? God has you right where he wants you. More so, Paul makes it clear, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 through 18, and see if it makes the chapter uh, make more sense. I'm going to read this chapter because this is the money. If there is... a if there's a part in, this, in Philippians that's the money, this part is the money. Let me read it to you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, humility, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death. He didn't count his life precious even the death of the cross. So we're not talking about an easy death here. Wherefore, God has also, also highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that the na- at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. All of the created order will bow. That exaltation. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Live it out. Live out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings, murmurings or disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I may have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice of service for your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause, for that very same reason, you can also have joy and rejoice with me. Does that that make sense now? Not only why we can have joy, but why Paul is so bold in all of this? Paul was the one who says that I may apprehend that for which I was apprehended of Christ Jesus. Why was he apprehended? To suffer, carry the gospel, and to suffer for the gospel. That was why he was apprehended, and he leaned into it. Not afraid of it. Quickly looking at Hebrews 12.2. Remember that Jesus set his face like a flint. What did it say about Jesus in Hebrews 12.2? That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy. It's a living sacrifice. It's not simply a death. It's dying every day to self. Skipping ahead, almost with a sense of humor, Paul Paul points out that if anyone thinks otherwise, so Paul says that this is the purpose. This is what you're. This is why you're here. Paul says almost humorously, "If anybody else thinks that's different than that, God will show them." Finally, Paul points out at you points at Eudius and Syntyche as if to say in light of such lofty realities of our current and future state, that they would be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he relates peaceable traits that, we should, be, that should be characteristic, uh, among them rejoicing, being moderate, without anxiety, prayer warriors, thankfulness and gratitude, and to think on things that excel, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. And he repeats Think on these things. Finally, in the call back to the reason for which the letter was written, Paul points to Epaphroditus bringing the gift and counts the blessing towards the Philippians for their partaking in his works. He wants them to know that his appreciation is not for the gift. Instead, his appreciation is for their participation in the gospel because it shows their maturity. It shows how much like Christ they're being. He wasn't thankful for the gift. He was a thankful the gift. But the gift was their participation in the gospel, their obedience to Christ. Because of this, he knows who he is in Christ, who they are in Christ, and that Christ is in him. And it means life, joy, peace, and contentment. Paul calls out the various salutations from others in his company as we start to close out chapter four. And then he pronounces a benediction that God would supply all of their needs according to his riches and glory. And now unto the Father be glory forever and ever, is what he ends with. Amen. You're dismissed.